Welcome to the 80s and 90s Cricket Show. I'm Gary Naylor. Each week we look at a player and a series. This episode features Robin Smith and the World Cup 1992. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at CrickShow80s90s and our website address is 80sand90scricket.co.uk. Before we get started, can I just quickly thank our sponsors, Anderton Law. Anderton Law specialise in employment law, so if listeners have any problems at work that may be of a legal nature, then get in touch with them at andertonlaw.co.uk. Today we have Mike Selvey, former Chief Cricket Correspondent of The Guardian. Hello, Mike. Hi there, Gary. How's everything? Very well, Mike. Hope the same for you. Good, good, good. We also have Derek Pringle, former cricketer and freelance cricket writer. Hello, Derek. Hello there, Gary. Nice to have you on board, Derek. And Great Rob Smythe, freelance cricket writer who helped Robin Smith with his autobiography. Hello, Rob. Hi, Gary. Robin Smith, the much-loved South African-born smiter, a fixture of the England Middle Order from 1988 to 1996. He played 62 test matches, scoring nine centuries, averaging 44 against some of the most hostile bowling the cricket has ever seen. He also played 71 one-day internationals with a high score of 167, but that's only part of the story of Robin Smith. Derek, what was it like to bowl to Robin Smith? Um, well, you knew that if you bowled anything short, it was going to disappear. So I tended to pitch it up. But um, I was a swing bowler then. And, and I felt that actually, as long as I could show him that I was moving the ball, he'd respect me quite a bit. Um, and therefore, I, fe- I felt very confident a- against him, really. It- it's like anything. Um, when I first bowled against Viv Richards, if-, if you didn't do anything with the ball, he'd murder you. But as soon as you get the ball shifting sideways, you're in the game in almost any format. And... Uh, once I learned to swing it regularly, I, I was a more confident bowler. And um, I know that R- Robin Smith uh, had, had a, quite a bit of respect for me as a bowler and, and the Essex team generally. So I'm not sure he punished us that often. Let's put it that way. And was that the, the, the feeling around the sort of county circuit when Robin was playing for Hampshire, that uh, he was someone you, you had a chance with if if you could do that sideways stuff? Or or did the, the kind of aura, because he was, he was certainly, for those of us on the outside, he was a, a player with an aura. Did that get around the circuit? I, I can't speak for anyone else, really, Gary, because <laughs> I didn't discuss it with them. But I, I think the thing, having played with him a bit for England, that I, I did notice is that fast bowling, especially when it was banged in and, and sort of you know aimed to hurt you, really energised him. He really loved that stuff. I mean, it got his adrenaline bouncing. And uh, you could see, I remember batting with him once at, at Lords in the 1991 test there against the West Indies and he got a huge score 160 odd I think can't remember uh, what did he get 148 not out and uh, I remember batting with him and Kirtley Ambrose was bowling from the pavilion end and it was just steepling bounce quick as anything because Kirtley was quick at that period of his career and and every, <laughs> every mid-wicket chat would be the judge his, his eyes were just coming out on stalks he was just loving <laughs> it because he was batting really well and and you know Kirtley you know, would beat beat the bat, but as soon as he just got the width a little bit wrong because he was banging it in and, and trying to hit 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 him, he'd smash it 
up that hill, up the mound stand like a bullet. I mean, it was an incredible knock, and and uh, it helped us to save that test. Although weather intervened as well, so uh, we were we were behind the eight ball certainly when he came to the crease, and uh, when he left it, we were safe. Mike, you had a lovely line I, I read earlier today, saying that if you were uh, required to have your head removed from your shoulders, <laughs> then uh, then Robin Smith yeah. was the man. And of course, you're you're referring to one of the kind of iconic strokes of English cricket in the eighties and nineties. 90s, which was the Smith Square Cut. Yeah, yes, yeah, so I'm not sure that's a line I'd use these days. No. <laughs> <laughs> but the square cut, you think of Robin, you think of the square cut, don't you? You, you just do, you know. I, it, it's a Hampshire thing. It was only him and Gordon Greenwich. You know, they were, they were just incredible square cutters of the ball. They, they hit it so hard. But it was Robin's go-to shot. It's funny because people talk a bit about Robin being a good cutter and puller. I don't remember him. Derek, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't remember him being a very good puller of the ball at all because he was so always looking for the cut. He was always staying leg side of it in those terms. And if you look at the way he avoided short bowling, you can see that he was always looking leg side. He only swayed back. He never ducked under the ball. He always swayed back, which is one reason he got, when he got hit, he got he got hit like that. But that square cut, I mean, you, I, I know he said in, Robin, your in your book, he said there about, uh, oh, people always used to say, don't bowl short and wide to Robin Smith. That's very negative. You should say, how am I going to bowl to him? But you'd be stupid if you didn't say don't bowl short and wide to <laughs> Robin Smith. <laughs> no, I, you're right, Sam. I, 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 he did take on the pull, but I don't remember him being uh, someone you thought, well, he's a great practitioner of it particularly. Um, I mean, he, he could he could whack it off the front foot as well, don't get me wrong. You yeah, know, he yeah, drilled yeah. it through extra cover like, like a shell as well. But it was interesting because... He must have learnt the cut abroad because nothing about the Northlands Road wicket in Southampton really sort of lent itself to for, for good cutters. I mean, it wasn't bouncy or anything, was it, particularly? No, no, not as I remember it. And like I say, as a Hampshire, you know, Gordon was sort of brought up in, in Reading initially. And uh, I played against Gordon when he was very, when he was young, he was about 15 or 16. He was a blocker. And then somewhere <laughs> along the line, I think he discovered he was West Indian. <laughs> and he started to play like it, and, and you know, until Robin's square cut, I'd never seen anything quite like it apart from apart from uh, from Gordon's square cut. Yeah, but you're right, you're right, Daryl. The same same pitches. Yeah, yeah. The um, there are stories of him growing up in in Durban, Robin Smith, and his father installing a wicket for him, and yeah. his uh, his other son Chris, who also played for England, of course. His dad put a, like a mark on a tree, which was basically where backward point would be at the bottom of the tree and he was always encouraged to hit that and I think that's one of the reasons he perfected that shot because he just played it constantly hour after hour I mean what made it such fun for us watching from the the boundary is that is the Popeye forearms because he, he looked like a man who was built for the square cut and then went and played it all the time so it was lovely um Rob uh, the one of the things that's said about uh, Robin Smith is that for all of his great play against fast bowling and legendary eyes on stalks uh, adrenaline flows when Kirtley and Courtney and Ian Bishop were let them sniff the leather um that he he was troubled against spin but the figures don't quite bear it out but um you have a particular spinner who got in his head and he got into a few didn't he yeah i think you have to put it in context his record against india and sri lanka is very good but that is partly because he played in 1990 he averaged 181 against an india side who worked great and it was that year when pitches were incredibly flat but yeah i think his struggle with spin, having spoken to him, I think you have to break it down into two things, really. Shane Warne is a different thing. Shane Warne got in his head and it's still there, basically. He said that when he came to Hampshire in 
2000, I think it was, so seven years after he had tormented him in the ashes. It was only then he realised how powerful his hold on him was because he would bolt him in the nets and just get him out constantly. And in the end, Smith, as captain, basically said, bugger off to another net. I want to feel good about my back. Um, the others, he struggled at times, but he also got test hundreds against Murley, against Mushtaq, against Kumble, played really well against Abdul Qadir in the Nehru Cup. I think clearly he wasn't as comfortable against spin. I mean, he grew up on hard, fast wickets. There were no mystery spinners in South Africa when he was playing uh, as a youngster. Weren't that many in English cricket in the 80s either. But I think, I do think his struggles were overplayed because there were times, for example, if you looked at him on the West Indies tour of 93-94, you would say he couldn't play fast bowling. He kept getting bowled, playing a fraction too late. I think when he was out of form, he could look really bad. But he did find a way generally to make runs. And the other thing is, I think his record against spin in one day cricket is really good. Um, and I think that's possibly because he had to force the issue more. I think in test cricket, the more he became kind of stereotyped as somebody who struggled against spin, I think he became more cautious about being seen to get out to a spin. So he would just try and survive, didn't necessarily have a get out shot. Whereas in one day cricket, his record is really good. Like I think only Joe Root and Ben Stokes average more in Asia in ODIs among England players. But I mean, he got a, a brilliant defensive hundred in Colombo when the humidity was off the scale against a young Murley. People tend to forget things like that and just remember the hard hands and, you know, um, being caught silly point or whatever. So I think it was just a, a, when he was out of form, he could look really bad. But there were other times when he played spin really well. And it, you also have to understand the context of his upbringing, really. He just wasn't exposed to pretty much any mystery spin until Mushtaq in the 92 series against Pakistan. And it, it did come as a bit of a shock because it was so alien to him. Rob, did he have um, a bowling machine uh, at home in yes. Durban? Yeah, he did. And he said basically... You see, that, you see, that often encourages people to play very firmly with firm, as you say, firm hands, etc., mm. etc. Et um, yeah. You know, there's, there's classic now. You can see the players around the England team who have been brought up on bowling machines. Mm. Um, you know, they play in a certain way. And he spent so much time on it. That was the other thing. It would be six, seven yeah, hours a day. exactly. But you're right about that, that knocking Colombo. You know, he, he didn't score of at least 270 of his 338 balls. So, you know... Yeah. Non-scoring shots. There were times when he could basically get runs against, but I mean, even ninety-three ashes when we generally think of him having a shocker, he still averaged twenty-eight, which I know is not great by his standards. But it's not like he was just getting one and nought. He was still kind of hanging and get twenties and thirties. But he's always said that Warren basically Warren was the one bowler who he genuinely couldn't get a handle on. I think you you look back to those days and and analysing somebody is very simplistic, wasn't it? You know, you you really only had an average to go on. That's all you could do. So um, if you looked at Robin, for example, I looked at his you know the tests. He played six tests against India. We played three of them in England. One of those he got a hundred when England got when Gucci got three hundred, uh, and the and the other one he got a hundred when England got five hundred nineteen in in Manchester. Now you say, well, of course it contributed to those scores, but nonetheless, you see they were the pitches in India. He averaged thirty three. So and and you're right, he got the hundred against against Murali. But they only played one offs against Sri Lanka then, didn't they? But yes, but I think today yes. with the with the you know the very 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 detailed data that is available to to people he might have been seen in a different light because it would have seen against who what type of bowling he was good what type of bowling he was weaker against you know you remember even Kevin went through that period with the left arm spin for example didn't yeah. he so he like all would have benefited I think from that and might have been seen in a in a in a different light well it's curious I think that that Warney was the one who troubled him because Shane Warn is not a man who's got a magical box of tricks he tended to just bowl leg breaks very accurately spun it a, quite a lot 
and the odd flipper. So, you know, that's two things for, for Robin to kind of control. He must have got into his head somehow. Yeah, that, exactly. That's where Warney's great. He, he chirps away. He chirps away. He's a great psychologist. And That's exactly he, it. He said it was the way he, lo- <laughs> the way he looked at him, just they were kind of really knowing, <laughs> almost contemptuous, as if it was just as if he was yeah. deciding how, exactly how and when he was going to get him out. Maybe it was the South African psyche that Warney was brilliant at because he got, <laughs> yeah. he got into Daryl Cullinan's head as well, didn't he? <laughs> I, I just want to ask a question about the reaction of the the media to robin smith compared to fans because he was a he was a great fan favorite um my father didn't have a huge amount of time for the south africans who were getting round the uh ban and and using sort of various means to play for england but he always liked robin smith and i think he was a, a great favorite amongst uh, those of us who were sitting on the boundary then but my feeling at the time and maybe this is unfair was that he was one of those players that if he got sort of 60 or 70, it was reported in the press as being disappointed not to go on and make the 100, whereas other players uh, make a, a very handy or useful 60 or 70. And it's just that glass half full, glass half empty with Robin Smith um, that he seemed to get not the best deal from the uh, media. I mean, Mike, is that fair or unfair? Um, I, I don't know, really. I don't remember being unfair to him particularly. Um Maybe maybe I was. I, I I think there's a tendency, and it still still happens today, for people to uh, they they don't like seeing practical pugnacity, if you if you want to call it that. They prefer to see, you know, if I if I had a quiv for every time I've thrown up over over somebody's dreamy cover drive, the game's not about <laughs> dreamy cover drives. But you know what I mean, don't you? And, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and that that's not the the best players have that, but they have other things as well. Uh, and it's not about that. Robin had a... Well, I wouldn't describe Robin's cover drive as dreamy. You know, it was, it, that, that was more brutal too. But I think people people see that and they, and they see him rasping out this square cut and it's not so aesthetically pleasing, is it? Um, and maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe, you know, if we're lyrical writers, as we're supposed to be sometimes, then it's easier to write about that than it is to write about rasping square cuts. Unless you call him rasping all the time. I never felt as a fan that the media was unfair to him. But one thing I think is important is because he started so incredibly well, he was averaging 50-55 after two or three years. I think that created a level of expectation. So maybe his lower scores felt more disappointing because he'd been so good, I think, number two in the world. And I do think that had an impact. Had, he, had his career started fairly slowly, then expectations might not have been so high. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to move on because there's two other, two other things I want to talk about. One is the uh, end of his career and the circumstances around the end of his career and later we'll talk about uh, the, the kind of stuff that was uh, revealed or examined in the autobiography. But the, the end of his career, at the age of, of 32, he's had a, a bit of a decline in, in form but he's certainly not had a couple of disastrous series or anything like that. He averaged 43 against the West Indies, top scoring in both innings in the Lord's Test and in his last series he averaged 36 away against South Africa, third in the averages behind Michael Atherton and Graham Hick. But for the first test of the next summer uh, against India, this is in 1996... England go with three debutants. Uh, that's Ronnie Irani, Alan Mulally, and Mim Patel. But perhaps more pertinently, the record Nasser Hussein made a century. And, and all of a sudden, and it felt like a sudden, Robin Smith is is out of the England team, plays a, a few more ODIs, but then is is gone from the uh, England setup at the age of thirty two. 
Derek, was that a surprise or was it seen coming? Or well, I think my memory of the, of the time it was a bit of a surprise, uh, certainly to me. But um, interestingly, because obviously I knew we were going to discuss this, I, I had a chat with Mike Atherton the other day, and he said, obviously in hindsight, it was a terrible decision to get rid of uh, Robin Smith, you know, that that quickly and that brutally. But his memory was that you know there's a sort of um, a reason out there or, or or a reason given that he fell out with railing with and and mike said he didn't think that was the case he said illy was gunning for him a little bit in 94 but by then had realized it but he said the thing was robin in that in that in that series against south africa was batting at number six and the thought was that they needed an all-roundery type player to bat really at six and, and to bowl a bit and that's why i guess Ronnie Irani was brought in. Now, whether you think Ronnie Irani is a good enough replacement for Robin Smith, I'm not so sure about that. Um, but that's what happened. And, and of course, Mike said, you know, in hindsight, it was a disastrous decision. Yeah, I mean, there's a quote from Mike Atherton that they decided to move on, which is, you know, what happens in, in teams. And the, if you want to be a, a successful team, you do have to move on before the previous generation have uh, reached the, the end of their uh, useful life as a cricketer. I mean, Mike, what was what was your view of, of Robin Smith sort of being shuffled off to the domestic game yeah. at the age of 32? Well, it- it, it was it, yeah. It was a surprise to see somebody that proficient go so suddenly. I agree with that. Again, simplistically, I, again, I look these up. He, you know, he went thirty-eight, one hundred in his last thirty-eight innings, and people do judge you by that. And that hundred he got was was in Antigua on when Lara got three seven five. So you know what, what what sort of pitch that was. His average was going down and down and down. It was it was on the downward curve for a long time. It's gradual, but it was going down. He was so, slipping down the order, wasn't he? Yeah, well, yeah, but there, that's the thing, isn't it? You have to look at the reasons why, the reasons behind it. You know, that's a simple fact, and and people in those times, Dell, as you well know, looked at your averages. That, that's what they looked at. That was the only measure they had then for for, for judging somebody. So. I'd say that was a part. I also did wonder, which, you know, again, something Rob, Robert know about and, and maybe we'll discuss a bit, whether some of Robin's future problems were manifesting themselves then and they became part of the narrative about Robin, whether people were saying, you know, this is a little bit awkward now. Um, what do we do about it? And And I suspect that maybe even those issues would have been dealt with much better now. But back then... Maybe I don't know. That that's just a thought I had. Um, again, Dell can probably tell me more about that. Uh, Mike Allerton never mentioned that when I spoke to him. No, I, I, there was a line in Darren Goff's book where he talks about a game on that tour. I think it might have been after Allerton's one eight five in Joburg, and they, they celebrated pretty hard that night. And I think Robin and a couple of the others were still going strong the next morning at the airport. And um, Goff says he saw Rillingworth give him a look and thought. You need to kind of watch yourself, judge you, or you'll be in trouble. The interesting thing is that actually, he actually top scored in six of his last 13 test innings. So his form had picked up. I agree that it had been in decline, but basically, I mean, he says he was suffering from burnout, though he didn't know at the time. And then he had the winter yeah. off, 94, 95, had a shoulder up, came back and played pretty well. But Illingworth cleared out quite a few at the start of that summer. Alex Stewart was also dropped, who was actually older than Robin. As luck would have it, Nick Knight broke his finger, I think. So he got back in and he played another 80 tests and scored another 5,000 runs. It's really interesting, you know, the kind of serendipity of it. Robin never got a chance to get back in. Had he done so, you know, who knows what would have happened. 
So, Rob, as we um, sort of move on to to the subject I want to raise uh, towards the end of this section, which is really the the two men, Robin Smith and the judge, uh, the judge being the uh, cricketer immensely popular amongst the public and amongst his fellow cricketers, and Robin Smith, uh, the person that Donald McRae has described as the vulnerable man inside the swaggering cricketer. So, um, how, how did Robin Smith and the and the judge resolve those those two personalities after his playing career? I think he still is. I mean, it took him a long time, in particular, because of loss of identity. He had some business ventures that didn't work out, uh, but I think he really because when Hampshire let him go, which I didn't realise it wasn't his decision to retire, um, it was enforced. So I think that really stung, and I think it took him it took him at least a decade really to become kind of at peace with the fact he was no longer the judge and I, I think a really important part I mean it's such a simple thing in life but he, he met someone and fell in love after his uh, after he was divorced he went through like a really really dark period um, but I think meeting Karen just basically gave him more purpose in life and now he's seems really happy he's back actually because he fell out of love with cricket as well I think there was a bit of bitterness because of the way it ended both with England and Hampshire but now he's in Perth does a lot of coaching I think he gets enormous joy from that but I think it's still a a thing you know I think he's still there's still a part of the judge within him and also the kind of the the judge character he said the reason he loved fast bowling as well is just that he, he thinks he's got an adrenaline addiction and so I think there's still an element of that which is why he needs to be quite kind of um vigilant with his problems with alcohol in the past and things like that but he's yeah at the moment he seems to be probably as a piece as he's been any point since his retirement I guess uh Mike you've said that uh things were different then and you would hope things would be better and I think we're yeah. we're all aware that PCA does a lot more of this kind of stuff yeah. with retired cricketers um have you any uh thoughts on cricketers who get into these difficulties they start to emerge during the career and then uh crowded on them later I don't think there's a, a, a cricketer ever who wouldn't have benefited more from the support that there is in the game generally these days not just not just international cricketers but uh, uh professional cricketers across the board you know we we've, we've we've seen how prepared people are now to understand that the stigmas that there once were to these things are no longer there and that people can be open about them and if they're open about them then there's always help available be it be it alcohol problems be it mental health issues other mental health issues be it drug problems be it gambling issues all these issues are now there are now support groups available to all players like through the pca um, and, and, and they're fantastic. You know, I, I remember a game I played in oh, back in early 70s at Yorkshire and the young Yorkshire player there was really, really struggling. He was ill. He, was, he had an, an illness of some description, not a mental illness, but an illness. And he was in a bad way. And all he got, I remember hearing it from his team, ah, it was, oh, give up your big cry, baby, your big cry, baby. And that's the support he got. And that was... No, I'm just picking that specific example, but that was that was kind of generic from from how things were. You know, if you if you you, you front up, you weren't man. If you didn't front up, you weren't man. You see, and and that plainly is wrong. And and we've, we're in a society now where we acknowledge these things much better. And I think Robin specifically would have been able to benefit from that and from being able to be more open, perhaps about this thing. I cannot believe that he went through his career not knowing that he'd got a problem with alcohol 
you know, you only have to read the, the, the industrial quantities that he that, that he went through in company. You know, I, I Del, you you probably mix with Robin. I, I happily, I have to say, never never mix with socially in those terms because I, I, I don't think my constitution could have stood it. Well, now, I I room with him quite a bit in that '92 World Cup, and uh, you know, I'm fairly gregarious, but he he was out of the room a lot longer than I was. Yeah. <laughs> You know, well, it's, the, som- it's, the sombrero yeah. bar in South Yarra, Melbourne, seemed yeah. to be the place he used to head for. It sounds it sounds like he was he was very easily led to. Yeah, he was by by, you know, by coterie, and uh, he was. you know that's a dangerous thing too because it's, it's actually quite strange that isn't it that for for such a a strong man, I mean in, in in cricket terms, a strong player, a strong personality, a strong player of fast bowling. That he was so malleable in those terms. He, he was sweet, a sweet-natured guy, uh, very generous, yeah. but but naive. And uh, but I think the whole thing is actually a bit more complex than we, we're giving it credence to here, because you know I think there were, were issues with his father, the way he drove him. Yeah, you know to yeah. do all that stuff. I mean, uh, Rob, I don't know whether this came out in your book. I'm afraid yeah. I have to admit <laughs> now I haven't read it, but <laughs> I, only, only, I don't tend to buy cricket books. Only those that are sent to me, and that one wasn't <laughs> sent to me, sadly. We'll get you a copy, don't worry. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but, but there's that. And also, Selv, I think um, the thing I noticed is that South Africans who went on to play for England were never totally accepted. Never totally accepted. You know, uh, yeah. uh, Gary was talking about the, how the yeah. media treated him. I think that was at the back of it, not the fact that he didn't play lovely strokes or, or, or pretty strokes. It was the fact yeah. that he was a South African who became playing for England. I think, you know, never quite belonged and it was interesting that Gucci's sort of criteria for, you know, guys coming to play for England, he said, I, I don't mind them playing for England as long as they make England their home. And, of course, yeah. <laughs> the judge the, the, hasn't. <laughs> and nor has Graham Hick. Um, <laughs> I have read Rob's book, and uh, I, I must admit I'm absolutely astounded by the relationship he had with his father. You know, it, it, the, way, the way he tells the stories about him. I found I found it quite horrifying, to be really honest with you. I get the impression that that was fairly normal in South Africa in those days. I don't know from from what he said. Um, funnily enough, they have a great relationship now. Um, yeah. I think they're probably closer than they've ever been, which is um, yeah, quite interesting. Yeah, I think we should we should say that none of us are sort of uh, psychiatrists or sports psychologists, but we're we're all aware of of what it uh, takes and the, the toll it's taken on people who have vulnerabilities, and we're all aware of when people are ill and when people are are well, and um, the revelations in the book and so on that make for for difficult reading speaking of south africans i remember the spitting image uh, song i've never met a nice south african and we all kind of laughed along with that because uh, south africans uh, particularly during the apartheid era were um, were targets for that kind of thing and and i'm sure that that kind of context and background uh had some effect when when one heard the south african accents when players were interviewed at the end of games um, i just we, i just said to gary that uh, you know with robin he was he was someone that uh, didn't like to spend a, l- a lot of time with his own thoughts and yeah exactly. you know and and cricket unfortunately is a game of of long hours and, and introspection because it gives you that time to think and that's why i think you know, when he when he was batting, he was fine, and when he was numbing it a little bit with a lot of alcohol, he was fine, or he felt fine for that that moment. But uh, he is not someone who was given over to enjoying his own company. I don't think. 
that's yeah, not I, true. I remember the former great golf writer at The Guardian, Di Davis, who told me he was he was very friendly with Ernie Els. Yeah. And it's a similar kind of thing, really, in, in, in a way, in that he, Ernie, I think Ernie was Ernie, Ernie's Theophilus or Ernie Theodore Else, E.T. Else. And Di, he used to say to Di, Ernie plays golf, Theo drinks. Uh, and yeah. I, and I wonder if there's a similar a similar thing there. Must be a South African thing because didn't that, that yeah. what's his name the bowler Gunter have the alter ego Gunter? <laughs> yeah, Andre, Andre yeah. Nell. Andre Nell. Nell. Well, we'll we'll wrap up just with uh, an innings that we we cannot go without mentioning, and it's Robin Smith at his very best, having spent a little time looking at the difficulties of Robin Smith. Let's let's celebrate that against Australia at Edgbaston. He scored 167 of 163 deliveries in an ODI, which was unheard of at that time. For 23 years, it was the highest score for England before Alex Hales made 171. But what's sometimes forgotten is that the rest of the team made 91 of 180 balls. England ran into Mark War at the other end and lost. And somehow, there's something about that innings something about that result that kind of um summarizes or captures some of robin smith's career there um extraordinary innings i remember watching it in a pub in soho uh, and yet it never quite came through to the the success that it deserved but we're glad that we had the opportunity to watch him uh, bat and we're glad that uh, as rob smythe points out he's he's now in a better place can i just say oh, gary yes, i played in that i played in that game where he scored yep. that hundred and, and i remember one of the sixes he hit craig mcdermott i mean you know Ian Botham, I think, uh, a decade in the previous decade had hit McDermott quite a long way at Edgbaston, but everyone <laughs> reckoned that this had gone a lot further. <laughs> and, it, and it is to my eternal shame that we didn't bowl very well, me included, and, and that, you know, that, that great innings wasn't rewarded with a victory. One last thing on that, because you're right, a lot, a lot of the time with England in particular, his best performances came in defeat, like the 89 Ashes. He batted like a god and England lost 4-0. But actually with Hampshire, it turned out a bit better. He he played in three finals, was man the match in two. Once he played brilliantly against Wacker in 91. And in the other one, he played the innings and got him into the England team. So in many ways, his happiest team moments were with Hampshire. Or the kind of fusion of team and individual were more with Hampshire than England. So we move to the second half of our 80s and 90s cricket show this week, where we are looking at the 1992 World Cup, uh, which was played between February and March in 1992, no surprise there, in Australia and New Zealand. There were nine teams that played, with Zimbabwe qualifying for the tournament, joining the eight test-playing nations at the time, with South Africa making their World Cup debut after readmission. It was 50 overs per innings and it started with a group match all play all round robin with the top four progressing to the knockout stage to play semi-finals um, one of which was particularly controversial and eventful which we'll come to in a moment but if we can start with the the kind of build-up to the world cup i mean derek you were in the party so uh, what was it like for the england players in terms of preparing for the biggest tournament in world cricket yeah I, I, well we went we had a nice tour of new zealand uh, to to pre-phase it um and that had gone pretty well i, th- I think we'd uh, won two of the test matches and uh, all three of the one days that we, we scheduled to play against them and of course um you know you always think that teams playing at home are, you know going to be up there and maybe challenging but uh, 
we'd sort of knocked knocked New Zealand aside, so we didn't think they were going to be much bother, to be honest, in, in the tournament proper. But uh, they had a rethink, uh, and of course, we had a bit of a rethink on how we were going to do things. But they they took form, I suppose, late on on that on that New Zealand tour. So, you know, it's interesting. I remember. A couple of years ago, Andrew Strauss saying that, you know, to prepare for a World Cup, people need to know their roles about a year out. Well, we, we decided on ours about a couple of games out and, and <laughs> New Zealand even later. So, and we, and we both got to the semi-final, so, and, and in our case, to the final. Uh, it, Mike, you say that the, the Australians were playing shield cricket six days before the start of the tournament, where kind of nowadays they'd be on photo shoots and doing moody adverts, no doubt. What was it like uh, in terms of the, the kind of preparation that players got in, the, in those days? Well, it was nothing like as intensive as, as we have now. I mean, England played, I, I think, two one-day internationals before the World Cup. They, they, they didn't play like a test series and a one-day international series. There was a one-day international in the South Island before they played test matches in the, in the North Island. So it was that kind of a tour, England's, England's preparation. So I think the last... A test match only finished, uh, ooh, I don't know, ten days before the start of the tournament. So it was a, it was a natural link on, but it took the the tour of New Zealand wasn't specifically, I don't think, a preparation for necessarily for the World Cup. It was it was it was a test tour as well, uh, and a very very good one. And what was a the fun one? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I suppose <laughs> you're you're right because uh, not that not that it was a good tour particularly, but you know the fact that it wasn't a, a preparatory tour for the World Cup because we were playing most of our games in Australia, apart from the one game we played in New Zealand in New Zealand during the yeah, World Cup. Yeah, that's also true. Yeah, yeah, so very different conditions. What was it like in terms of the the press at uh, at the World Cup, Mike? Because now there'd be hundreds and hundreds. Where then I'm taking it there was the the newspapers, radio, television. Would that be about it? Well, I remember a, a, a pretty considerable media contingent or press contingent from uh, from from our our press. Uh, it look it was. I just keep laughing about it because we had such a fun time, you see. And, and <laughs> they, they, uh, let me tell you, the uh, the whole of that tour for us from New Zealand right at the start of January, right through to the World Cup final, was the karaoke tour. <laughs> um, and it and it and it was just happened that everywhere we went, we 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 seemed to find a karaoke bar and we had karaoke. I I, I looked I looked this up right. I watched twenty seven days cricket in New Zealand and I played thirty four rounds of golf. <laughs> <laughs> and drank and drank industrial quantities of cloudy bay it was um it was that kind of a tour but the the, the karaoke well the karaoke tour actually I, i'll just tell you this right it ended in melbourne in a bar in melbourne with christopher martin jenkins who you'll never get me into one of those karaoke <laughs> bars oh come on major come out with this come on oh, all right all right and it ended up with him sitting on a stool there singing pat boone's love letters in the sand <laughs> including <laughs> including the whistling bit in the middle so that was the, that's the kind of tour it was and it was it was just wonderful what was your so, song so- mike what was your song <laughs> Oh, I used to. I, I, I sang. Um, All we have to do is dream. That was one of the ones I used to do. Everly Brothers song. Yeah. But I used to. I used to do in harmony with Hayser, Peter Hayser. <laughs> so. It's golden, an golden, golden Brown's taken over now, hasn't it? Oh, the, yeah, that'd be it now. Yeah. <laughs> but it was. It was anyway. That's what it was like for the media. Uh, and, and and you know, I mean, joking aside, we we had to travel around. It was a fair bit of travel. 
To be honest with you, I don't recall coming back to New Zealand to watch England's game in New Zealand. I, th- I think that might have just been logistically not a very good idea. I probably watched other games out there during that time. You know, we had to we had to go around and watch other. It wasn't just specifically England. You know, there's a tournament to cover there. So I I, I haven't actually looked. I may be wrong on this, but I don't, I, I'm pretty sure I would have watched other cricket as well besides England. Fantastic. Well, we'll get into the into the group stage now, and the eventual finalists start with very sort of control contrasting uh fortunes Derek I mean England started off like a like a train didn't they well we had we had a slightly close game against India I'd say at the Wacker and uh, um the one thing I I sort of felt as uh, myself is that you know those white kookaburras had started to swing for me in New Zealand and and as I say it was a late decision for me to really open the bowling but um, the bounce in the Wacker pitch took you know the, the ball would swing but it would sit up a bit and uh I didn't bowl particularly well there, actually. And uh, it's the first sort of sighting I'd had. I'd seen on a, on a cricket pitch of Sachin Tendulkar, and I think he got 30-odd, and Ian Botham got him out. But it was quite a close game. But thereafter, I think we hit our stride, and we played pretty well, um, including overcoming um, the rain rule for the first time when we played against South Africa. And I think we had nine or ten overs lopped off. And obviously that rain rule, which was invented by Richie Benno, it didn't pay if you if you bowled first to actually bowl many maiden overs because you know if you lost overs they'd take the overs that the fewest runs had been scored off, and so our our score I think shifted by about eight runs or something that we needed and and the overs had gone down by nine so nine overs seem, eleven runs it was yeah, yeah it didn't seem very fair to us anyway yeah. well you you were the leading maiden over bowler in the whole tournament uh, Derek so uh, you, you weren't well, following your well, own well, advice well it's an interesting <laughs> thing because I remember somebody um, when when you know discussing that World Cup came up a couple of years ago somebody said we didn't take many wickets and, and it's true I didn't um, but that's the way I'd been brought up at Essex is to create pressure through dots uh, and, and you know I just bowled a, a length and a line that wasn't that aggressive I mean Nowadays, I suppose, if the ball was swinging like that, I'd be encouraged to try and take wickets, in which case I'd shove it up a bit further and bowl it at middle and leg rather than sort of middle and off. People people often ask me, you know, how would you have been? Would you have been a good T20 bowler? I said, if I did now what I used to be good at doing then, I'd be 36 and over. Because, <laughs> because, because the one thing I could do... I think you do yourself out, down, uh, self. No, no, but you, I mean... You, Move the no, ball the, sideways, the, mate, and what, you what did. I mean, what I mean, you, you're uh, going to be in the I, game. What I mean is, you'd have had to have bowled uh, to adjust, and you're absolutely right that the the way to play then was to put the scoreboard pressure on them by bowling dot balls. I think Gat wrote a, a, a book about one day cricket, how to play one day cricket, and he had me in there. As and this, this sounds like complete anathema, as a, a master of the defensive new ball spell. <laughs> now that kind of tells you that, that, you know, that that's not that's well, it's not being pejorative either because that's what you did. You bowl your eight overs on a Sunday for as few as possible and, and get out or the twelve in a in a Gillette game or whatever. And the wickets weren't as important as they are now. Mike, no, if we can look at at the Australian team who were obviously playing at home and they were favourites going into the tournament and they they failed to get out of the group stage. What was the what was the atmosphere like in in Australia? Because kind of popular 
thought has it that once kind of Australia are out, you know, we move to kind of, you know, competitive kookaburra spotting on television rather than cricket. Was was that how yeah. it how it was? It's often been the way, hasn't it? You know, it's very it's unbelievably parochial in those in those terms. There was this expectation that Australia they were you know they had to I mean it's it's still quite a strange thing that they had such a good team. But there was something very Dare I say this English about the way they approached that? But English in in future tournaments, in that they're almost playing the previous tournament. You know, we did we did that. It was like that two Ronnie's sketch, you know, answering the question with the, yeah. the answer previous or whatever. England for all those those years were always playing catch up on how they approached the World Cup. They're never innovative, and the, and the Australians were were pretty much like that in 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 that tournament, I think. And some aspects of the game had moved on the white ball and, and all that. You used two balls, Derek, didn't you? Yes, we did, yeah. One, yeah. one new one each end. Yeah, yeah and the colour clothing and the floodlights and, and those. You know, they, they hadn't moved it on. They've got these great players, but they hadn't adapted to uh, four years hence, really. Jeff Marsh, who was a very good test match opener, in that tournament, his strike rate was 41. Yeah. Can you imagine that now? It's just yeah. unthinkable. Well, I mean, <laughs> it is bizarre, isn't it? And he actually had a really good one-day record up to that point, didn't he? Mm. Well, that's why he was playing. But they left out some good players and, and, and kept some who you think, why? You know, he was one they kept, and... Didn't they leave out Simon O'Donnell, who was... They uh, did, yeah. Yeah. And if, eventually they put Tom Moody to open and started to have some better results towards the end, but obviously by then it was too late. Yeah, they just kept shuffling the openers, didn't they? They they never mm. settled on a pair. I think they, they did never got over. I think they were ambushed, weren't they, by New Zealand, who opened the bowling with Dipak Patel and kind of strangled them with all those kind of medium paces on a sticky pitch. And they just never really recovered from that. Lost the next game to South Africa, and by then they were in big trouble. Then Ian Botham had his last, one last hurrah against them. And yeah, and, then, and that left them on the brink. Beefy in that game was just extraordinary. I mean, he was <laughs> messing around, wasn't he? Really? He did four, four for nothing, didn't he? Yeah. Well, he came from Panto, Selv. He came from Panto. Well, that's it. He arrived. Uh, he, he wasn't fully fit. And he just yeah. trotted in and bowled at, like, well, barely medium pace. And uh, he yeah. just nipped it around a little bit. And the, the ball he bowled, AB, Alan Border, was, was a cracker, it was said. And then he, and then he went and pinched it at the side of the innings and smashed yeah. it for a quick 50. Well, that was the one time he loved he came the Aussies. Off. He loved that was, the Aussies. That was the only time he came off, wasn't it? Was, it? Yeah, it was, yeah, it was. Well, there you, there you had England's preparation in a nutshell, didn't you? That, that, that One of their... Well, the leading players, the most iconic player, didn't pitch up in New Zealand until the third Test match because he'd been in Panto. <laughs> it's extraordinary, isn't it? It just is. It is. It is indeed. Um, we kind of feel sort of obliged to use the word mercurial when talking of Pakistan, but this was yes. Pakistan at their most mercurial. I mean, Rob, they they start off so slowly, they get themselves in a position when they're out of the tournament, and then by their fingernails, they get themselves back in. Yeah, I think there's an unwritten rule that if Pakistan are going to win a global tournament, they have to start with as many shambolic performances as possible. They did it in 2009 as well, in 2017. Um, I mean, it, it, it was a complete mess. I mean, some of the players who became most important, Javed Miandad, wasn't even in the original squad, <laughs> ostensibly because of a back injury, but apparently it was more to do with politics. Mushtaq Ahmed was almost left out. At one stage, he wasn't going to be in the squad. I think they won one of the first five games and obviously were bowled out for 74 by England and were saved by the rain. At one stage, before South Africa, they couldn't even afford to buy any new cricket balls to practice. That's how big a mess they were in. And then it all changed. I mean, there's a famous cornered tiger speech before the game against Australia at Perth. 
uh, that Imran Khan, the captain, did. Some players talk about it, you know, like it's the most profound thing they ever heard. Some say it didn't even happen. I think Zaid Fazal, who was in the squad, says he can't even remember it. But others like Aki Javed and Mushtaq say they were really inspired by it. And after that, they got on a roll. The interesting thing is, though, we'll come to the final, is that everyone talks about England running out of steam and... Pakistan peaking at the right time, but had certain things gone England's way, they, they could not only have won, but could have actually won that match at a canter. So Pakistan kind of were always living on the edge. They had to win the last three group games, and then they needed Australia to do them a favour, which they did by beating West Indies. But they did, they started to, I mean, they, they were a hodgepodge of a team. Ejaz Ahmed, who's a batsman, was often coming in like eight or nine and bowling filthy left arm, medium pace. Um, Imran promoted himself to number three and after a while um, Salim Malik was in diabolical form I mean a, a genius but he was in terrible form they almost did it with half a team really uh, it was an incredible story I mean the three matches that they won in order to qualify for the semi-finals and it was do or die each time were Australia Sri Lanka the defending champions I think and New Zealand so kind of think only Pakistan I mean Mike you'd you'd interviewed Imran Khan I think in the run-up to the series I mean how how was he obviously there's a whole sort of uh, mythical aura about Imran now but but then he was just transforming then from being kind of playboy cricketer all-rounder to um, hospital builder and obviously later going on to be politician I mean this is often sort of remembered very much as kind of Imran's triumph the tournament as a whole but what was was Imran like in in those days in that transformation I have to say, it was a great surprise to me to find out I had done an in-depth interview with him. Because <laughs> <laughs> so it's not something I recall, but I, I think I did the interview. In, well, this tells you a little bit about how we were able to operate in those days. This was this was in the dressing room, the Pakistan dressing room, I think, in in Adelaide before that rain game, Derek. Between karaoke sessions. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, he was injured at that time. He, his shoulder had gone and he, was, he wasn't playing and... Um, he was batting, he wasn't bowling, I don't think. And but See, I'd, I'd known Imran since he was a kid, actually, because um, when I was at Cambridge, Margie Khan was playing for Cambridge, and he used to come over to see Margie, and he'd come round to uh, to our flat, and, uh, and he was a very shy, quiet lad, you know? The transformation of Imran really happened in the mid-'70s, around about 75, mm. 76, when <clears throat> he decided that, A, he could bat better, than people thought he could, which was also very true, and that he could bowl fast. Uh, and, and hitherto, he'd been bowling little prancy, big in-swingers, medium-paced in-swingers. And, and he developed this um, this action, a big jump into the crease and front foot hammered down and started bowling quick. And from that, he became one of the, one of the great all-rounders. You know, I mean, average, what, did 40-something with the bat, did he? And then low 20s with the ball. He's a remarkable cricketer. But in 92, he was getting on a bit, wasn't he? And he was, I think he was approaching 40 then, wasn't he? Was, he was, yeah. You know, it was starting to tell on him the... the the uh, not just the physical demands of what he what he did and and that uh, interview illustrates that you know he was icing his shoulder up and he watching other people having to do stuff but also the the demands of pakistan cricket in general you know the who's running what the 
he seemed to have retired plenty of times and and he said well no i only ever retired once and that was in 87 and uh, and i came back because uh, zier i think um asked me to so i came back because the president said you've got to play for your country and and he i suppose he got them all back together and he he said about mustag you mentioned mustag earlier he he said we were on the verge this is quoting him we were on the verge of sending him home he'd had to be bowled so badly so you imagine that sending somebody home from a from a World Cup. You know they lost the first game by ten wickets. They won one game in their first five, and then suddenly, you know, so the corner tigers thing happened, and and suddenly they clicked. It was it, it was a remarkable transformation. One interesting thing: they were so attacking in that Australia game, which was the turning point. Akib Jarvis bowled a brilliant spell of outs with early on, and kind of sums up their approach. And David Boone who was Australia's informed player, was caught a third slip, third slip in a one day. That kind of sums up how they went about it. And those that kind of aggression in the field was so important. Obviously, Wazin was told to, because he was struggling to control the white ball, and Imran just said, just forget about wides and no balls, ball as fast as you can. And Mushtak in the middle overs, which was really unusual. Most teams had kind of orthodox defensive finger spinners. Um, so to have a, an attacking leg spinner was a, was a huge advantage for them. Well, let's move to the semi-final, New Zealand against Pakistan. And I want to start with you, uh, if I can, Rob, because especially for younger listeners, or indeed for for those of us remembering, to to actually look at the kind of ways that innings were constructed, New Zealand spent 40 overs getting to 171 for three and then scored 91 in the last 10 to reach 262 for seven. Now, when we were watching, we just kind of accepted that this was the way that one-day cricket was played, uh, which seems extraordinary looking back now. Yeah, I think that was just a norm. Funnily enough, New Zealand were the one team who did have a pinch hitter, Mark Greatbatch. Even that was done on the hoof. He actually came in, I think, the third or fourth game when John Wright got injured and just started slogging and it and it worked. Um, but most teams did just keep wickets in hand. I think there were only two 300-plus scores in the whole tournament and they were in the same game between Zimbabwe and Sri Lanka. It was just kind of... that, And it's also, though, I think, because... As Derek said, the, the uh, cooker bro was swinging quite a bit. So I think it was often a case of just, yeah, keep wickets in hand and go big in the last 10 overs. That's what a lot of teams did. Derek, was that just accepted orthodoxy? Did anybody ever say, look, if we can score 91 off the last 10, can't we score sort of 80 off the previous 10 or something like that? Well, we had a pinch hitter in Ian Botham, who, who obviously went out to take advantage of the early uh, field positions. If, um, but generally, yeah, I think the orthodoxy was you, you try to make sure you, you know, you're only four or five down by the time the last ten came round. You could you could give it a go, and uh, often, you know, ten and over wasn't out of the question in that last ten. But you're right, you know, risks weren't taken except maybe by people like Beefy uh, and uh, Great Batch who. Uh, as as Rob has pointed out, um, when we played the three one days against him in New Zealand, he was batting, I think, three or four. He wasn't opening. And, yeah, he'd and never having opened. A swing and having he'd, a swing. He'd never opened for. He, he he actually came in for the second game after John Wright got injured. John Wright injured his shoulder in the in the opening game uh, against Australia, and Great Batch came in at the top of the order. Martin Crowe was one of the game's great innovators. He had an unbelievably brilliant cricket mind. He was the one who came up with the idea of Dipak opening the opening mm. the bowling. Incidentally, Derek, he said he never goes... I spoke to him quite recently. He said he never goes a day without thinking of you running him out. So, <laughs> in, in the test match in, uh, in Christchurch. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Um, uh, so, you know, he, he Dipak 
bowled, opened the bowling, except he, except in the one game against, um, uh, later on, he didn't bowl at all in a game. But New Zealand's policy then, it was a brilliant, they used their pitches brilliantly. That's the, you know, they're so resourceful. You know, they, they had, you know, Chris Harris and Rod Latham and, you know, these slow, medium paced bowlers into these slow pitches. Do you think so? And, they'd uh, have gone that, they'd have gone that way if they'd had, say, three or four games in Australia on those, on their pitches. I, I can't believe it would have had the same effect. No, it wouldn't. It wouldn't no, but they knew, but they knew what they were doing, didn't they? Yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the innovation, so, we should, we should point out, Mike, that the innovation is that Dipak Patel was bowling finger spin, opening the bowling, which was yes, just unheard yes, of. Yes, sorry, yes, absolutely. He was and, 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 and they had slow, medium cutter bowlers in Larson and, and Chris Harris. You know, Dibley sorry, and, and, and Latham, they, 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 you know, they, they just took, they, these days they call it taking pace off the ball, don't they? <laughs> um, and then it was taking an awful lot of pace off the ball. Every ball. Um, <laughs> every ball, every ball, yeah. Yeah, and uh, you know, and it worked for them on on their pitches. And then we so we get we get to the we get to the semi final, which uh, you know we'll, we'll we'll talk about, I guess. Yeah, um, but it, uh, just to finish off the first semi final, New Zealand against Pakistan. Um, yeah. Pakistan in in the chase. I mean, they weren't much different after forty overs. They were one hundred and eighty six for four, so they were fifteen runs ahead. But they certainly hadn't uh, tried to to up the. Uh, up the ante early on, but they had uh, Inzimam, who was just coming through at the time, and Javed Miandad, as sharp an operator as ever held a bat in his hand at the crease, and they still had Salim Malik, Wazim Akram, and, and Moeen Khan to come. Um, so even constructing a chase, they, they stuck with the orthodoxy. Well, Imran, uh, Imran pushed himself up to do that, didn't he? He pushed himself up to three towards the end of the group stage, because I think they wanted to take the pressure off because Salim Malik was in terrible form and they wanted to... Inzamam hadn't got many runs in the World Cup, so they wanted to take the pressure off him and just let him be able to slog towards the end. Or not slog, but, you know, hit out. But yeah. one thing about the semi-final that's worth mentioning, how cruel it was for Martin Crowe. He got a brilliant 90-odd, but more than the runner ball. Then he pulled a hamstring. Then he was run out by his runner. And oh, then he couldn't captain because they wanted to... I don't know how bad it was, whether it was precautionary in case they got to the final or whether he just couldn't run. But they missed him terribly. I know a lot of people think John Wright's captaincy cost them that semi-final. Whether that's fair, I don't know. I can't remember, but it's always been something that people say that he basically ignored the blueprint or not ignored but altered it a bit too much the blueprint that worked so well yeah did uh, self did did john wright play for auckland uh that's a very good question I, i'm not sure he did i think he played for cd didn't he central districts right in that I case think. you want you wonder that maybe crow would have done a better job that auckland ground is just weird shape to defend yeah him. look he Rob is absolutely right. The, that was that was the crucial thing of that match was was Martin Crow pulling his hamstring because Crow had orchestrated their progress through the whole thing and he'd done it fantastically well. And then suddenly, they, you know, their their brains, uh, were, you know, John Wright's not a stupid cricketer, of course he's not. He's a, he's a fantastic cricketer, but he didn't run it as Martin would have run it. And I don't think that Pakistan would have got away in the way that they did. And, and certainly, you know, the young Inzi coming in. And it was, you know, it was, it's, it's a strange ground even now, uh, in part, because, you know, now the pitch just runs straight along the halfway line of the rugby ground. So you've got about 40-yard boundaries either either end of that. But uh, in those days, the, the pitch was um, diagonally across a, a, a rectangular rugby field. So there were some strange, really strange angles to defend, weren't there, Derek? There were. I mean, where Inzerman was started to have that sort a sweet slog and I mean that was probably a pretty short boundary you know yeah. 50, 50 yards 
Yeah. Well, yeah. we'll we'll move to the second semi-final and a, a captaincy uh, decision. Kapla Vassels, having played Test cricket for Australia, was now captain of the readmitted South Africa. The coin goes up. It comes down in his favour, and he says that we'll have a bowl. And this is knowing that rain was in the air, and there was this uh, Richie Benno rule about um, how to calculate targets. I mean, Rob, do you want to say what the uh, the rule was? It was a shambles, basically. But um, <laughs> so um, the idea was that if overs were lost, you would take the lowest scoring overs from the first innings so if as Derek said if there were eight maidens hypothetically and you lost eight overs then the score would be the same you just have to do it in 42 overs and a few teams were punished India lost a very tight game to Australia because of it early in the tournament England overcame it as Derek said with that great win against South Africa but it meant that yeah, you were. I, it's beggar's belief to think you would um, bowl first in those circumstances. The only thing I, he, he said at the time that he knew someone who who played with in Sydney or something who basically said there would be at most fifteen to thirty minutes rain all day, and kind of went on that advice. But obviously, in hindsight, you would with that rule, you would bat first every time. He said it was a risk he was prepared to take. That was the quote he gave at the toss when I think Ian Chappell interviewed him. Because he did quite a lot early on, didn't it, as well? It were good bowling conditions. Nip, nipped, nipped around a little bit off the seam, certainly. Uh, but yeah. the other thing to, to bear in mind, Gary, is that you know Channel 9, who showed the TV, had, had very strict scheduling. So any interruptions weren't really catered for. You had to be off air at a certain time. So that's obviously came into play as well. So what were, what were the kind of... I, I don't think you played in this match. Is that right, Derek? No, I, I picked up a, a rib injury in the game against New Zealand. I didn't actually finish my my over there. It was so bad, the pain, and I thought I'd wreck my, my entire World Cup. And uh, thereafter, I'd gone round with Laurie Brown to various um, medical facilities to have cortisone injections, and they didn't seem to be helping at all. But uh, So I, I thought, you know, I was just feeling pretty sorry for myself, and I was, I was out of the cup at that stage. So, I, I, yeah, I was... a interested bystander as it were so what what was the feeling in the in the england camp when they realized they were the batting and then perhaps more importantly what was the the feeling in the england camp with this extraordinary recalculation where south africa and england come back onto the field with the south africans um, having been in a strong position needing 22 runs off one ball well my my feeling was from the sidelines it was going to be a tight finish but there was no ways that i thought south africa were going to definitely win that game even before the rain I mean everyone just assumes that in modern sort of days that that's an easy easy equation to, to win it I don't know what they needed 20, 22, 22 or 13 of 13, 13 but yeah. they didn't have yeah. many wickets left I think exactly yeah I mean the, the last two recognised batsmen were at the crease Richardson and McMillan was it yeah that's right uh, um so, you know, there was pressure on them and, and that, that's the way I always felt it, having, you know, played a lot of cricket with Essex who are not very, not very good at chasing. <laughs> There's a lot of pressure on the batsmen, you know, as well. Um, and I, I just felt it was going to be a pretty tight finish. Um, you know, it could go either way. And then obviously it rained uh, and then <laughs> slightly farcical. But we knew, we knew that um, there was no leeway because of the TV scheduling and, and the fact that, you know, once it rained for a five or ten minutes that was going to be it unless they made a special case that it was a semi-final I, I agree with Derek on the on the outcome of that by the way this thing sort of got transmuted into South Africa were robbed of victory <laughs> um, by the rain rule and and they weren't 22 off 13 I still made England favourites to win that game they were much more favourite when it was 22 off one ball I grant you but 
22 or 13 wasn't a cinch for them. No, I mean, I think the feeling... But also, you've got to remember, Gary, that uh, they cynically bowled over slowly to stop us taking advantage of of the death, you know, that we planned for. So keep wickets in, in hand, and then they didn't bowl the last five overs. My memory of it, again, I'd, I'd ducked out of work and I was in a, a pub in, in Soho again watching this on a, on a television, was just the, the shock of seeing the uh, scoreboard come up with revised target that South Africa needed 22 off one ball. And I think there was some controversy as to whether it was 21 or 22. And absolutely nobody who was even a cricket fan, I think, at the time knew that that's what would happen. I mean, everyone expected a revised target but I think what felt bad was that they had a chance of winning and that chance was completely extinguished by this uh, rain rule with all of the reasons that they were in that position that you've outlined do you know what it would have been under Duckworth Lewis 380 odd they would have needed (laughs) they would have needed four off that last ball apparently yes yeah which would have been really interesting sorry I meant 280 odd not 380 (laughs) yeah well, they, they, they got to it, and there was some kind of incredulity. What was it like? Um, were you in the press box, Mike? Was was there a reaction yeah. in the press box? Did everybody know that was what was going to happen? Or Oh, I, I, I could never get my head around the raid rules, to be really <laughs> honest with you. And I'll, I'll be really honest, the game's a bit of a blur for me. I don't remember an awful lot about it, apart from that. Um, and apart from, you know, dribbling with rain, and, oh, God, we got probably thinking, I've got to write up it again, and, oh, God... <laughs> All these things that journalists do. Yeah. You know, yeah. the game's the never about the game, I promise you. <laughs> I think the outrage was that it was a semi-final, so therefore, you know, a big, big event, and it ended like that. I think that was the outrage. Had that been a group game, nobody would have blinked an eye. Yeah, that may well... It was, it was a very important series for South Africa too, that, because that was their first one back, playing uh, top-level cricket, international cricket again, and... Uh, I believe the repercussions back in South Africa as a result of the tournament were, were quite significant in uh, in a lot of the things that happened politically back home. So uh, it was it was very important. And it was unfortunate. It was a shabby rain rule. It really was. It was an appalling rain rule. I, you know, we, we we all admire Richie Bauer enormously, but that was a that was a faux pas. That, uh, that yeah, one of his few faux pas. Yeah, yeah it yeah. was a, it was an error. So England and Pakistan go into the final. Pakistan with a ton of momentum. England with rather. Uh, less momentum, having started the tournament so strongly, and um, and then lost uh, the last two group games and got through in these extraordinary circumstances. Pakistan bat first in the final, and I can see this uh, this bowler called D R Pringle, ten overs, two maidens, three for twenty two. He must be uh, an impressive bowler. What what did you think of his bowling, Derek? Racking up those dot balls, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's an interesting thing. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of you know semi blow my own trumpet. Um, I bowled three wides and five no balls. Now, I wouldn't obviously contest the wides because in those days, just like now, if you just missed the pad and it went down the leg side, it was wided. But all those no balls, and I'd always had a problem with no balls in my career, and I'd always argued the toss about them because I used to land with my heel up. Ian Botham did the same, Paul Alec did the same, and we used to pivot on on the front foot there. And a lot of the time, I was shadowing the back of the line and therefore technically not a no ball. And Mickey Stewart said afterwards, because everything was replayed in Minushi in that World Cup final, he said all of those five no balls, not one of them was illegal. So the fact that I bowled them, gave eight runs extra in extras and bowled seven balls extra... (laughs) 
<laughs> and Remy's Roger hit me for a four, I think, in the first or second over I bowled. I didn't go for many on those other balls. Yeah. So, you know, it can't have been more than a handful of singles, really. The Pakistan innings, they lose both openers. But it was swinging. Yeah. They, they lose both <laughs> openers to, to yourself, uh, Derek, uh, Amir Sahail and uh, Ramiz Raja. And then the old stages, even then, but we, we think of them as icons of Pakistan cricket, Imran and Javed put together a, a stand of 139 to re-establish the innings. What was the, the talk amongst the England team as, as these two were, were doing their thing? Well, Imran... Uh, I- because again, I, 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 you know, just a bit of background. I, I obviously had this uh, fitness problem with my ribs, and and I struggled to, to get fit. And the, and the day before the final, I thought, I don't care if I wreck myself because I haven't got a game for Essex for about five or six weeks once I get back. So I pushed it in the nets, and it hurt like hell. But then bizarrely, it started to get easier. And I, I said to Gucci, "Look, you know, there's a possibility here." And he sent me down to the nets early the next day, and I had another bowl. And you know, I said, as long as you don't bowl me too many sort of chop and change and too many spells where I get stiff and then have to get loose again, I think I'll be all right. So he bowled me, I think, seven or eight straight up. And as I say, the ball was swinging. So got those early wickets. Imran then really just sat on me. You know, he didn't want to play a shot in anger. He just made sure he didn't lose any wickets. And obviously there were the close LBs against Javid that Steve Buckner, for some reason, didn't want to give. Uh, can never quite fathom that. But um, I, th- I think we all felt it was still under control because I remember there was drinks break and... What were they at the, the, the 30 over stage? They were about 150, were they? Or a bit more, maybe? Anyway, Beefy said, lads, they. Sorry, they were 90 odd, weren't they? 30 over yeah, stage. Yeah, 96 right? for two. 96 for two, yeah. He said, don't worry, lads, they're not going to get 180 here. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, I just sensed then that we, we went through the motions a little bit and, and we just let them build a stand that, that you know, allowed their a few hitters down the order. Inzamam and Wazim to come in and, and swing a bit more freely and uh, I just think we got just a little bit complacent. Uh, Mike, what was the, uh, the the view in the in the press box? Because not much was known about Inzimam at that time. He played that sensational yeah. innings in the semi final, and you know Wazim we know, knew uh, was a, a dangerous hitter. But they they put on fifty odd in in six overs uh, at the end, and you know that's unheard of hitting. Was there a sense in which it was, uh, here we go again? Was going around the, the press box or, or uh, I, I the English? Remember. Contingent fact, I was, yeah, I was, I was actually working for Test Match Special than the, ah. the game there, and I can remember thinking or saying, articulating, "I'm not sure what Imran's doing here because he was holding out." Now Derek, Derek says rightly, he was, he was, he was sitting on Derek. He didn't want to lose any more wickets, and he wanted to, one, one of the one of the great arts and uh, that you have to learn from, I guess, from playing one day cricket is what is a score. And he'd obviously got it in his mind. I think now hindsight. What was the score? What did they need to achieve on that on that pitch to to win the game? And he came in three, didn't he? And he batted three, four, and five in that in that uh, tournament. He didn't didn't bat three all the way through, but he promoted himself to three to do that specific job. And although at the time I was bemused as to what he was doing, you know, in hindsight, he's exactly what he was doing. He was making sure that they had wickets in hand for that uh, that charge at the end and. Javid, again, um, of course, contributed to that. You're, you're far too modest, Derek. It's the first time I've ever told that story uh, with quite so muted fashion about the LBWs. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, 
<laughs> You're usually not, fishing a barrel with that one. Not but we... true. It's not true. <laughs> <laughs> I thought they were just sliding down personally, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, is it, is it's, interesting, it's interesting, though, because as soon as I came off, Imran then played a really wild shot and should have been caught. And and uh, he slogged, I think, De Freitas or Lewis high high sort of over mid wicket, and he got a top edge, and it went up, and it was Fairbrother's catch. But as Fairbrother turned to chase it backwards, not he didn't have to go far, ten yards maybe, he slipped. At which point, Gucci then decided uh, he was at square leg. I think he he was the one who needed to make the catch. But in fact, in in hindsight, I remember watching this from mid off. I think. It was an easier catch for Anna Lamb to run round from mid on, who because he'd been going forward rather than running backwards and chasing it like oh. Graham did, and eventually he dropped it, unfortunately. But had we caught that, I think you know it would have been a very different. Yeah, story. Pakistan make two hundred and forty nine, and there's almost a a kind of pleasing progression in terms of strike rates, which rather underpins the point earlier about uh, Imran having a score in mind, because Imran and Jarved went at roughly sixty runs per hundred balls. Inziman went at one hundred and twenty runs. Runs per hundred balls, and Wazim went at 180 runs per hundred balls. So it's kind of a crescendo towards the end of the innings. Not off and me, it, they didn't, Gary. They're off <laughs> you, not off you. That uh, <laughs> that handy conversation about not being able to bowl uh, too many spells uh, was was came in uh, useful. Well, I did bowl at the death. I bowled, I bowled two or three at the death. Last over went for two, I think. Last yeah, over they, didn't the go, they didn't go for many. Go yeah, there's wickets there. But um, England then chase a, a, a kind of very round 200. 50 from 50 overs and they they lose uh, both of them for a, a duck uh, to Wazim Akram so the pinch hitting didn't uh, pay off and Alex Stewart in at three uh, he goes to Akib Javed Gooch is, is still in uh, Hicks out with the score on 59 Gooch goes soon after and then Lamb and Fairbrother come together and start to rebuild the innings. Now, Neil Fairbrother was was very much the uh, the linchpin of this one day side. Rob, do you want to just describe what Neil Fairbrother was like as a one day player? I think both Fairbrother and Lamb were fantastic finishers. I mean, Fairbrother was just a kind of what would be called a nerdler, I guess. Just always kept things ticking over. He got a brilliant hundred against the West Indies, I think, the previous summer in an ODI. But just a really accomplished finisher, but kind of like a, a not quite at the same level, but an earlier version of Michael Bevan. One thing it's worth mentioning is that um, Hick was out to a beautiful googly for Mushtak, which he didn't pick at all. It was brilliant bowling. Um, and also that Ian Botham, I think, swears to this day that he didn't hit his court behind. Whether that's true, who knows? But yeah, I, I think while Fairbrother and Lamb were there, the, the kind of rate was going up, but actually they both had so much experience of winning games back in second. I mean, Lamb famously had that game in Australia when he hit Bruce Reed for 18 in the last over. So while those two were there, I think I think the rate was up to about maybe seven and a half, eight, which is quite a lot in those days, but it didn't feel too much while they were together. And they were both in by the time um, Wiser Macron came back into the attack as well. So, so remember, so- the MCG is a huge ground. Those boundaries 85 yards. So you're not going to start smashing sixes. Yeah. Mm. So, so Derek, you're padded up while, uh, or almost padded up while this is, Thinking is about going. Up. Up. <laughs> yeah, and England <laughs> lose. Fairbrother goes for sixty-two, and then Wazim Akram takes two wickets in two balls with Alan Lamb and Chris Lewis, and you find yourself in the in the middle. What was what was the thinking between yourself and and Dermot Reeve, I suppose, who were who were there at this Just point? Just try and take it as deep as possible. Um, I think uh, Wazing was in one of those moods where, you know, to try and see him off, not take too many liberties against him. But I suppose uh, it'd been obvious, I think, um, that Imran had been struggling 
to bowl, you know, as he used to bowl um, because of the shoulder injury. So we weren't sure who was going to maybe be used there. Mushy uh, still had a few left. Aki Jarvan, I'm not sure. I think he might bowl out by then. Anyway, just just really, I mean, D- Dermot Reeve was a great gambler. I think and a, and a un- underrated batsman in many ways, but um, it was still a very big ask for us to to win the game. But I just thought try and take it as deep as possible. Did you ever feel like you you actually got a blow in because you, you kind of came close, but it was never it was never quite at the stage where you're thinking one big over and we can do this, was it? Um, well, in those days, it, it, again, the thinking wasn't quite like that. It's just yeah. that don't lose any more wickets if you can avoid it, and and try and you know milk it away at five or six and over, and see see you know certainly a big over would would be in the offing, maybe in the last five, but maybe not that far out. No. Rob, you were going to come in. I know. I was just going to say there's a very funny story in Derek's book about mowing car, and I don't know if you want to, <laughs> you want to tell that. It always makes me chuckle. Well, yes, well, well, well the, the, unfortunately, the publishers wouldn't let me put the swear words in. There. Um, <laughs> there's not I'm much not sure left. We can, repeat, take... <laughs> we can repeat them now, but um, basically, uh, he was he was pretty vocal mowing, and uh, he was you know calling me the c word perpetually <laughs> while I was facing when he was up to the stumps, and I was facing mushy and. Uh, uh, he bowled one in the sort of slot outside off stump for the slog sweep, and I s- absolutely nailed it. And I thought, as it went, you know, this is six. And I, d- I did turn around and say, that's six, you know, so-and-so. And, of course, it just hit the top of the, the tin advertising board, which in those days was four. And um, uh, he just went, no, that's only four. You know, swear words, swear words, swear words. <laughs> Well, it's uh, it was it was their day. Uh, uh, Mike, what was the uh, what was the reaction then in in the press box? Because the reaction, obviously, to England winning the World Cup when eventually they did do it, some you know, generations later, was extraordinary. But was was the level of of, of disappointment? Was there a sense of of you know we're not going to have the chance again now for generations? Was there a sense in which cricket had missed an opportunity to to become? English world champions. At that point, we hadn't even won the Rugby World Cup either. There was only the no. 66 well, we, heroes. We, we, of course, we'd already we'd messed up the 87 final too, hadn't we? Similarly, even got to the final of that. And and so it was a bit old hat, really. Um, I, I just had a look at what I wrote, actually, about it. And I, in, in, the, in the, the final report I did, I, I just noted that Pakistan had got this... I said they were fresh with vigour. I said England looked drained and devoid of energy. Uh, it was a long tour um, with many good points, but it was perhaps a match too far. And and actually, I think one of the things that struck me was at the end of the qualifying. I, I think you lost your last two games, didn't you, Dell? You lost um, you lost to Zimbabwe, that's for sure. On a bad we lost pitching. New Zealand in Wellington when they, as you that's say, right. got yeah. the pitches uh, right. <laughs> yeah, and the, and then and then you lost it to to, to Zimbabwe in uh, yeah. in Albury. Neither me, me or Reeve or Chris Lewis played in that game. No, no. Our colleague from the Daily Star wrote about that game. I noted this, right? The game in Zimbabwe. Remember, he got bowled out by Edo Brandis. Yeah, and he started. Yes, he did. He started his piece. England were plucked, stuffed, and roasted by the chicken farmer from Zimbabwe. <laughs> you know who that was, Del Daly. That was that was the burger. Burger. And yeah, yeah, it was at his best. Um, but we really was... only got our best team on the park for the final. Early on, Lammy so, had a had an injury, and then Gucci went in the fetlock. Then I had yeah. an injury, and Lewis had no. An injury. There, 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 were, there was a lot of that, wasn't there? But 
It's interesting because we haven't mentioned it in either of the segments of this podcast that Robin didn't play in that final. He didn't, yeah. And and, and that was a big call, wasn't it, from Gucci because he had a bad finger. He injured his finger in the semi-final, before the semi-final. He uh, did his back... His back went before the set. Oh, his back, sorry. In fielding practice, though, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Uh, And he insisted he was fit for the final, and Gucci didn't pick him and picked Dermot Reeve, or Lammy, actually, instead. One of those two. It was Lammy, they said. I mean, a a lot of people now look at it as Robin or Dermot Reeve, but actually, at the time, it was him or Lammy, and they went for Lammy. Obviously, because he was a genius finisher. We don't know what would have happened. Obviously, we don't know what would have happened. The the judge scored a brilliant 91 in the first game, but thereafter, didn't do that much, actually. That's right. No. Kind of lost a bit of momentum. The one thing he always says about it the, the obvious frustration is that he had such a great big match record for Hampshire in particular so I think that's why he kind of regrets the fact he didn't get a chance yeah he got 102 runs in the next seven matches and then, and then, then yeah. he sort of left out and then funnily enough the next summer they played Pakistan in the one day series and I think he was man the match in three of the five games kind of had a point to prove <laughs> but. but of course you you know you had then two sensational deliveries from Wazim Akram to uh, Alan Lamb and Chris Lewis which kind of knocked the stuffing out of uh, out of England's middle order there and uh, and gave an example of what Waz could do you know it was just a genius wasn't it and, reverse uh, swing with a ball barely oh. 18 over <laughs> yeah <laughs> You still got to be able to do it, Dell. You could give, oh, give me a give, give me a set of housebreaking tools. I still wouldn't be able to break into your house, mate. Yeah, <laughs> so. it's, 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 no, it's interesting though. I always thought uh, um, someone like Lammy, the way he played, maybe just you know should have been LBW rather than bold. But it was it was a fantastic nut. It, it, it was, and and that raises the whole game for Pakistan that raises them even further and it's quite deflating when you see that happen as a, as a, as a player you know I know only too well and it, it knocked England backwards that one but uh, and in the end they won comfortably enough didn't they yeah I mean the, England fell 20 two runs short of Pakistan yeah. 23 runs short of the target 22 one, runs short of Pakistan one of the big frustrations for me certainly watching as a fan had me and dad been given LBW early on they'd be three down with not a huge amount to come because Salim Malik I mean Akib Javid said he batted like a number 11 in the tournament and they had Inzamam and Wazim, obviously, but they were so much more effective when they only had kind of 10 overs. Inzamam's longest innings in the tournament was something like 44 balls. So at that stage, you know, if he's coming in at, say, 40 for four after 15, then England could not only have won, but won at a canter. Two things really. A, we don't, we, we can't hypothesise about Inzi, but Inzi was such a, an extremely high quality player that uh, I, I think there's every chance that he would have been able to adapt. He was that, he was that good. But can I just tell you about the, about the, the well, both of their presses, Gucci and Imran, because uh, Gucci said, he said, we gave it our best and we, uh, it wasn't good enough on the day. He said it was, uh, it's not the end of the world though. And they said, well, actually he's pretty close to it. But, um, but there were three questions asked that press conference that have always stuck in my mind. One was one was to Gucci, who was asked, what did Ian say when he got back into the pavilion? And Gucci said, I was batting. <laughs> that was that was the first question. The second question was to Imran. It said, "Was Javid a big help to you on the field?" Now I don't know whether he was or not, but but he said Javid was not on the field. Did, so maybe at some stage Javid wasn't on the field. I don't know. No, he didn't field question, at all. Didn't no, at all. no, that's right. So what was was Javid a big help to you on the field? Javid was not on the field. And, and the third question came from an Australian journalist who said, "Can you tell me who batted first? <laughs> <laughs> free, well, press bar. Later, free press bar in those days I'll tell you who that was later yeah. well uh, on, on I, that I know who it was I know who it was <laughs> 
<laughs> on that bombshell, as they say, um, we'll we'll wrap up our look at the, the World Cup in 1992. Well, can even... I just finish, Gary, by saying, of course. That, of course, Jarvin knew he was out because afterwards, when I went to their dressing room and the, and the young lads <laughs> in the team had gone off with the trophy running around Melbourne with it, there's only Imran and, and Jarvin left in their dressing room, you know, and I went to say, well done. Jarvin sort of, you know, shook my hand and he, and he tapped his leg and he said, Bad luck, he said. Allah smile on me today. <laughs> <laughs> but but he was just like that because in Adelaide, when we bowled him out for for seventy odd, he nicked one there and didn't walk, and he was given not out. And I got him out a bit later because I'm chopped on, so there's no doubt about that one. And at lunchtime, he came up to me and he said, "Just a little touch, but you get me later anyway." <laughs> he was happy to keep winding you up. Yeah, he was a rogue, but he was, a rogue, he was bloody good. Yeah, I think we're gonna we're gonna look at Jarved as one of our players of the uh, week in a future episode, and I think there's uh, there's a few stories like that. Well, it, it only remains for me to thank uh, all of you for your generosity with your time and and such uh, wonderful stories. So that's thanks to Mike Selby, to Derek Pringle, and to Rob Smythe. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Cheers, Gary. Cheers. Pleasure. We'll be back again soon with another episode of the 80s and 90s Cricket Show that you'll be able to find on all your podcast providers. But until then, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye.